This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your stop for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and unfortunately, my regular co host, Monica Castillo, will not be joining me today. However, we've got a great lineup of guests that I'll introduce in just a moment. First things first, you need to know that this is a special bonus episode of Cinema Fix. If you're new to the show, basically this is the show on Film Geek Radio focused on in-depth discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. We are here to satisfy your addiction to quality conversation about the movies. And usually episodes are divided up into two parts. We're we're, we're talking about a specific movie. We've had a spoiler-free segment and a spoiler-filled segment. Uh, we're going to be releasing regular episodes on Steven Soderbergh's side effects and A Good Day to Die hard over the next week or so. However, what you're listening to right now is a special bonus episode I decided to put together in anticipation of, uh, of that fifth Die Hard film, and it's going to be focused on the Die Hard series as a whole uh, up till now. That's Die Hard 1 through 4, and I'm privileged to be joined by a fantastic group of guests. We're going to be going film by film through the Die Hard series. Uh, first up, he is the co-host of the First Time Watchers podcast, in which he and his co-host discuss both old and new films that all of them are watching for the first time. Tim Costa, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much. I'm glad to uh, be joining you guys. Next up, you may remember him from our episode on Skyfall a few months ago. He is a columnist over at CraveOnline.com, where he writes the series project, in which he reviews every in- single installment of Noteworthy Film Series. Whitney Seibold, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. I, pre- I am honored by the invitation. Uh, we're glad to have you back. And uh, finally, we are very privileged to be joined by our next guest. You can find his work all over the place. He's written about film for Cinema Blend, Movies.com, Fandango, and The Washington Post. He is also a member, along with myself, of the North Carolina Film Critics Association. I'm very excited to finally have him on the program. Sean O'Connell, welcome to Cinema Fix. Uh, I believed we were talking about the Home Alone series. Is this that's incorrect? <laughs> We, I mean, we can have an episode on the Home Alone films in the future if you would like to join us. I, I didn't realize that Home Alone was your second favorite film. I think I can hold my own with Die Hard, I guess. <laughs> I revisited all of the Home Alone ones, including the ones without Macaulay Culkin. How, how many are there now? Are there four or are there five? Seventeen. I think there are. Oh, seventeen. Yes. Okay. Is that something to be really proud of? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's not Air Bud. I've seen all of the Air Bud movies. I've, I watched all four of the three Ninjas films in one day, so you got nothing on me there. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'm so I'm so jealous. I don't have your job, Whitney. Oh man. <laughs> I'm working my way through Die Hard right now, so it's it's fine. Let, let's dive uh, right into things. The Die Hard series, for those of you who live under a rock, follows John McClane, a New York City cop who frequently finds himself caught in the middle of acts of terror, whether it's the hostage crisis and vault heist of the first movie or the cyber terrorism of the fourth film. He uh, never seems to catch a break. There have been four Die Hard films to date, and the fifth one is being released uh, in a few days on Valentine's Day because it's just a, it's a real great date movie. I don't believe any of us have seen the fifth movie yet, so we're not going to be talking about the fifth movie 
Uh, we're just going to be focusing on the first four films in the series. So first up, uh, Die Hard was released in 1988. It's directed by John McTiernan. It follows John McClane as he goes to L.A. to visit his estranged wife for Christmas. He's at a Christmas party on the 30th floor of Nakatomi Plaza when suddenly a bunch of terrorists led by the great Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber burst in the room. And that's the basic setup. Pretty simple premise. Sean, I'm going to let you go first, uh, since since I believe you consider Die Hard your favorite movie of all time. Tell us a little bit about that. Why is this your favorite movie? I mean, from a personal standpoint, I think it became my favorite movie just because of where it fell when I saw it. I was very much a developing film geek at the time. I think right at that time that I saw the first Die Hard, I was transitioning from, you know, someone who just went to the movies on a regular basis and enjoyed going to someone who sort of became obsessed with going to the movies and trying to see as much as I could. It's the first R-rated movie I was able to see in a theater. I just, I begged my parents to let me go. They brought me to, this is back when we used to have a, a multiplex inside of a shopping mall. And so my parents dropped me off. I went by myself and they shopped while I was in the theater. And it just, it, it connected on so many levels. It's, Without even knowing it at the time, it is the the type of hero that um, I still look for uh, in action films. Someone who is vulnerable and scrappy. It's the it's my sense of humor. It just introduced me to all these things that I didn't know I loved, but they just really really resonated with me while I watched it. But the reason why I still call it my favorite movie of all time is because over the years. Going back to revisit it, I realized that from a craft standpoint, it's so perfect. The script is great. All the supporting players that are pulled into the normal cliched cop movie contribute with almost every line of dialogue contributes to the overall story. All the performances are really great. It never forgot the humanity behind the character, which I thought the sequel started to lose track of a little bit. I read a ton of detective novels. I think John McClane in the first movie is a great detective. Mm -hmm. Uh, They give him so many great lines to just show how smart he is and how aware of the situation he always, always is. And I just think for and I, I maybe because I love the action genre I think it, it is the pinnacle of the action movie genre using all of the elements that we like about these types of films um, and getting every single element of it right it still holds up it's not dated and, and so I wrote in a column earlier this week that film critics get asked a ton like what's your favorite movie and your opinion can change day to day but I just picked the first Die Hard as the answer I'm always going to get, go, always going to give because I'm always going to be happy with that answer. I'll never grow tired of it. Wow, that's high praise, high praise. Whitney, what are your thoughts on the first Die Hard? Do you agree? Um, well, the the word was used already. Die Hard is really, it really is a perfect movie in terms of how boldly entertaining it is, uh, how slick it is. That's really important. It just it looks really good. It's very crisp. The screenplay is actually one that's held up with probably the highest esteem in terms of uh, Hollywood screenwriting history. Um, you know, you go back, you see these old movies from the 40s about screenwriters that are herded into these great big buildings and they have to you know, come up with something, something with zip really quick. And uh, every scene in Die Hard has zip. And uh, like you said, everything, every line of dialogue is orchestrated to add to the story even little tiny details like there's a a scene early in the movie where um bonnie bedelia's character is looking at a picture of of herself with john mcclane and she turns it down on the desk because she's feeling a little bitter at that moment and even that picture is picked up later by the bad guy and looked at as a plot point 
it's amazing how well written this the screenplay is and uh, even in screenplay writing books um Tom Lennon and Ben Garant of the state wrote a screenwriting book and one of their biggest pieces of advice was to watch Die Hard as a lot as often as you can to get that sort of structure mm-hmm. and I think after Die Hard action movies tried to be like this and they're still trying to be like this everything's still trying to be Die Hard Die Hard is still living down its legacy I'm not sure if anybody remembers how many film posters had the it's Die Hard on a blank <laughs> phrase written on it. It's like Speed was. It's Die Hard on a bus. Under Siege as well. Yeah, Under Siege. It's Die Hard on a boat. They're all Everything tried to be Die Hard, and everything is still trying to... Even the sequels are trying to be Die Hard. <laughs> With no success. Die Hard kind of hit it. I, uh, I feel unfortunate that I didn't actually get to see Die Hard until late in my life. You know, it came out when I was 10. I didn't see it until I was 30. But yeah, I was I I fell in love with it when I saw it. It was just such a perfectly tight movie. I loved all of the characters. Um, I even loved the obnoxious characters. You know, like William Atherton's character, that that jerky cop. Mm-hmm. The, they they were all such cliched but richly cliched, if you will, characters. And you know that that John McClane is not a badass. He's kind of an everyman. He's not like Rambo. He's not like Schwarzenegger. He he's not. The, the kind who's going to flex his muscles and pop your head open. He he feels like just a, a street-tough guy. Whitney, did you see the others before you got around to seeing the first one? Here's how I saw it. I saw the a portion of Part 3 on TV when I was in college. All right. Then I saw the fourth one in theaters. Then I saw the first one. Then I saw the first half of the second. Then I saw the second. <laughs> wow. So I did, I did it completely wrong. Yes. All right, Tim, do you agree with everything that's been said? Uh, Yeah, it's going to be tough to follow up what these two have already said, but like Sean, it's my favorite movie of all time. Nice. And yeah, unfortunately, I was only 10 years old when it first came out, and I wasn't able to see it in the theater, so that's the only one I have not first seen in the theater. So I remember my parents coming home from seeing it and saying how unbelievable it was, and my mom was the first to... Uh, purchase it on VHS, and and she sat me in front of it, and I watched it, and I fell in love with it. So I wore that VHS tape out so much, and several years later, we bought the widescreen VHS, and I couldn't believe how much more I could see and hear because of the worn-out original VHS. And my love just has grown from there from for the Die Hard franchise. Of course, the first one is still the best. And like Sean said, the, the screenwriting of this is, is impeccable, but you also have to hand it to John McTiernan for sticking to the screenplay and keeping all those little touches in there. And you can see that those, you know, that, that direction really isn't, isn't held through throughout the whole franchise, even though McTiernan came back for the third one, and that is the second best of the franchise. None of them still are as good as the first one. The first one is just a perfect movie, and and probably the the best action movie of the last 30 years still. I listened to the director's commentary for the first one, and um, McTiernan singles out another reason why I think the first one works so much better than the sequels is because he kept emphasizing the fact that the villains have to be relatable also like because it's a it's a quote-unquote people think it's terrorists he said you can't do terrorists and have it not be dark and angry he wanted it to be a heist he wanted it to eventually be a crime and he said you know we have to make hans gruber and all of his minions 
um, as entertaining as well because you can't hate them from the get go. And so it, he talks so much about the charisma that Hans Gruber has, so that you you know when they ping pong back and forth from your perspective, you don't just turn off and despise this guy from the get go. Yeah, and that you have to give a lot of credit to Alan Rickman. You know, this being his very first uh, screen role, and obviously he had been a lot of stage productions beforehand and he brought a lot of that charisma that stage charisma to this role which which is just perfect one of the best screen villains of all time it's something that john mctiernan brought to the the movie is its tone it's a light movie you enjoy it you're smiling and cheering throughout you're not sort of you don't feel disgusted or gross it's brutally violent and yet we're still having fun you know sure. john mcclain bleeds more blood than a human has in this movie and we're still having a great time <laughs> Um, and and it's little moments that really do that. It's little cute uh, flip asides that uh, – uh, there's also a really cute moment where a terrorist goes downstairs into a building and hides out next to a candy store and he eats candy bars while he's waiting. Yep. Cute little things like that. You know, it's – yeah, I understand that guy. They're having yep. a good – everybody's having a good time even when they're being brutal, brutalized. Yes. I also think that the original Die Hard has the most intensely structured third act – <laughs> um, and, and this is something that films, action films, chase forever, and they just don't reach it. But you mm. can get to a point where, and, and there are all these little action climaxes leading up to this. But from the moment that McLean realizes that there's C4 planted, you know, upstairs, and he has to get to it, and it's the fight with Alexander Gudinov, and he's got to get the people off the br- off the roof, and the FBI is shooting at him, and he's got to jump off the the with the hose wrapped around him. It, it 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 doesn't let you out of that grip, you know. And you still have a good thirty minutes to go, and it's ridiculous that it's first off able to sustain that, but secondly that that the screenplay is able to to get you to that point where all of the things that happened for that last half hour are believable, and it's never once pushing the boundaries of oh well that wouldn't happen. Wait a second, you just took me out of it. Every Everything that happens is supposed to happen, and it's it's just brilliant. Mm-hmm. I I agree with with everything that you guys are saying. Um, I think Die Hard it is the perfect action film. Every shot, every line of dialogue, every cut feels so purposeful, and it just all flows together so incredibly well. I can't remember who it was. One of you brought up the uh, sort of the cliched bureaucrats in the movie. Even even the more the goofier aspects are done with such a light tone that you don't really mind. I mean, you've got the reporter and the FBI agents, both of whom are named uh, euphemisms for penis. And it's just it's just uh, little touches like that. And one of the things that I think makes the first Die Hard movie work so well is there is that character foundation where it's just you know it's this guy he just he wants to get back together with his wife but the more i watch i heard the more i notice little elements related to that theme and, and that conflict the fact that he's checking out other women at the airport the fact that there are little images of pornography taped up at random points in the in the building that he's kind of constantly glancing at and the whole movie doesn't he call the pornography honey at some point? It's like, see you later, yeah. honey. Yeah. yeah. The woman across the, the in the other building, you know, who's on the telephone just wearing not, uh, lingerie. Something like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just, just, just little moments where you get the feeling, okay, clearly maybe there's a reason this guy's marriage is in trouble. But you kind of feel for him as he's 
fighting these criminals, he's gradually be just becoming more and more focused on, I got to say, my wife, my wife, my wife. She's the important one. So it works well both as an action movie and as, as a little character piece as well. I think it also gets credit for being, I don't know how many films did it beforehand, but the idea of limiting its action to the one place. I, and I think with the sequels, that was supposed to be the defining characteristic of a diehard film. It's essentially that he's trapped in a space. And so yes. when we got to... With a vengeance, I thought they blew it up a little bit too big and it started to lose a little bit of that focus in terms of, in terms of maybe what makes a diehard film. Is it just having McLean or is it McLean in a specific situation? And th- so I think the, de- the definition changed. It's still within a contained area when you talk about number three in New York City. And I'm sure we'll get there a little bit later on, but, uh, it, it still keeps it within that contained, you know, almost claustrophobic area because of any city in almost the, the country or the world, New York City is very claustrophobic. So, just like the claustrophobia you feel in the Nakatomi Tower in the first one, that that one is is increased in in geography, but still the 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 idea of claustrophobia is still there. I'm anxious to get to this one because I it's my least favorite of the four, so I can't wait to talk about this one. Oh. <laughs> you and I are going to have words, sir. You and I are going to tangle. Well, let's let's move on and talk about the sequels then. Um, it, it is interesting you bring up that point about the space because I feel like. With each subsequent Die Hard film, the location increases a little bit. First, it's a building, yeah. then it's a complex, then it's a city, then it's a country. I assume in Die Hard 5, he's going to be saving the world, and then in Die Hard 6, he's going to be saving a planet, or he's going to be on Mars <laughs> or something um, <laughs> at, at this rate. There's a bomb under California! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Die Hard 2 comes out in 1990. It's directed by Rennie Harlan. And it takes place uh, in 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 Washington D.C. <laughs> John McClane goes to the airport to pick up his wife. For, again, it's around Christmas time, but uh, terrorists take over air traffic control as part of this plan to free a drug lord slash dictator who was recently captured by the United States. Who's played by Franco Nero, by the way. Tremendous casting. And there are several main quote-unquote bad guys, but the primary one, I guess you could say, is uh, Colonel Stewart, played by uh, William Sadler. So, Whitney, I'm going to start with you. What did you think of Die Hard 2? As a sequel, is it a worthy successor to the quote-unquote perfect movie that was Die Hard 1? Well, uh, no, it most certainly isn't. Um, I've seen a lot of long-running film series, and... The second movies often make a really bad mistake, and I can even apply this this rule to the Star Wars movies. The first one is its thing. It's revolutionary, it's great, it's perfect. And it becomes so popular in the mind of the public, that's where the filmmakers begin, with the, the popularity of the characters. We go in expecting the myth, and all of a sudden the character is bigger and more uh, evil or or more good or more indestructible or more capable than they were in the first movie. All of a sudden, they're living up to the audience's expectations rather than growing from where they should as a character. I feel that's what they did with Die Hard 2. All of a sudden, John McClane has morphed from this everyman more into this super-capable badass because we, the audience, expect him to be that now. And uh, as such, the entire movie is predicated on the you should have listened to John McClane conceit. He's the one who finds everything out, and his only conflict is not even stopping the bad guy, it's getting past the other cops and bureaucrats so he can stop the bad guy. 
Well, to be fair, isn't that the case in the first movie? No, because he he's on his own in the first movie. He's contained within this sort of within the building, and he's using his own skills to sort of work his way around. He is a capable fellow. Well, still, you know, the in the in the first one, deputy deputy chief uh, Dwayne T. Robinson is not listening to him, or uh, Al Powell, who is listening to him. You know, so in in and in the second one, it kind of repeats that, like you're saying. Uh, but on on a larger scale, you know. Well, Tim, I t- I get the impression you liked Die Hard too. Well, I don't. I don't. F- I I think it's of the first four. It's probably the. It is the third worst. I I I don't think. Yeah, I don't think it's it's nearly as as good, of course, as the first one. But I think most of it. The problem is Rennie Harlan's direction and. And the editing later on in post-production, because there is a lot of noticeable ADR that is just terrible and poorly placed. There is one, you know, a good action sequence where they're shooting it uh, at the plane, and he has to eject, and and that is a fun sequence, especially with him ejecting into pretty much the camera into your face, but. After that, you notice when he drops and the uh, parachute drops on him, there is just a terrible line where he says something like, uh, where's the screen door or something like that. And it's it's poorly placed ADR, you know, and and that's just one example throughout many times in the movie that, that there's, there's editing and directorial problems. Well, and, and it just, it becomes so ridiculous in this one. Like, at the, at the very end, he finally dispatches the bad guy by exploding their plane. Okay, blow up a plane in a Die Hard movie, that's fine. But that he had not one, but two fights on the wing of a moving plane. <laughs> a guy got sucked into a jet engine, he yanked out a fuel line on his way down, and then set it on fire. And not only did the fire catch up with the moving plane, but it leapt through the air to jump into the, <laughs> the fuel tank to blow up the plane. So, are, are you saying that Die Hard 2 is unrealistic? <laughs> I'm saying there's a balance. When you watch something like Die Hard, you know, it blows up the floor, like an entire floor of a building. You know, they shoot two rocket launchers at a tank. There's a, you know, and then they blow up a helicopter. There's a lot of huge explosions and violence there, but it's sort of played by some rules. You could at least kind of see that. Die Hard goes past action movie rules into this weird sort of implausible action movie. It, it, it's difficult to explain, but it just, it, it lost me. It lost me throughout. It's interesting, too, you know, this being Rennie, Rennie Harlan directing this, and I actually think that this, this is Rennie Harlan's second best movie behind Cliffhanger. It, it's more of a combination of things than, than Rennie Harlan. The script is, is much weaker, and the, a lot of the supporting roles, like um, Dennis Franz's uh, over-the-top uh, security chief, you know, captain or whatever of the, of the airport, you know, he just takes it a little too far uh, in, in his not wanting to get on McLean's side, you know? Well, Sean, I, I know Die Hard was, is your favorite film. I can only assume Die Hard 2 is your second favorite film of all time. You are exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> I let you guys have your say. You all had your fun, but you're totally, totally wrong about everything. Wow. Uh, I really think that Die Hard 2 is, if you compare the two, in my humble opinion, uh, I think that they are... One and one A. I thought that I think that two gets as close to getting it right um, of the sequels than than any of the ones that came after it. Um, wow. And, and there are a couple of things I think that I liked what it did. It maintained 
McLean's inability to kind of realize when he was beat because he's just too stubborn or ignorant to accept it. And so he kept pushing through these places where anyone would have given up. And that's, that's something I've always liked about the character is his inability to quit. He just doesn't want to lose. He hates to lose. This one was hard R. It was foul mouthed. It was really violent. We saw icicles and eye sockets. Uh, we saw, like you said, the fight on the wing of the airplane. I thought the fight on the wing of the airplane was a tremendous conclusion. Way better than the 30-second uh, fist fight against the Austrian on the on the tanker at the end of Die Hard with a Vengeance before we go to Canada, which I'm sorry is <laughs> what the hell. But anyway, I thought that the, I thought choosing the airport and setting it in a blizzard was a good way to still maintain the. He's trapped in this situation and he's racing the clock versus a giant bomb full of pink goo uh, in Vengeance, which was bad. But I-, I like the fact that there's this element of he has to he has to finish what he's doing by a certain time. Now, I totally agree with the, that Rennie Harlan has a lot of production problems with it. And you're right, the ADR is really, really bad because especially when he says, like, there's your fucking landing light to Holly. I mean, it's yeah. bad. It's bad. It's bad. I mean, there are a lot of mistakes to it. But the tone, I thought that the, the tone of the, of what I thought established a diehard movie, which was him painted into a corner, uh, up against an escalating series of threats. Um, I liked the villains in two. I liked the twist. The first time I watched it through, I didn't pick up on the fact that they were using blanks in the shootout and that the military was involved. And I thought that was a really good twist. I thought that was clever. And I liked the fact that I liked Dennis Franz's character. Um, I liked the fact that McLean, I liked the fact that they repeatedly played on the, yeah, we know what happened at Nakatomi Plaza and this isn't LA and you're not worth much here. And again, it, I thought it did a really good job of keep playing on the smarts of McLean as an officer when he was able to get the blueprints and take a look at the blueprints with, um, Marvin down in the basement of the airport and he looks right at the diagram and he's like it's a bottleneck they're going into a trap you know he always knows what's happening next he gets out to the runway in time to stop Franco Nero when he's getting off the plane which is probably one of my favorite one-liners from the plane where he opens the door and he says freedom and gets punched in the face and McLean's like not yet it's great I mean that is great and I thought that sense of humor really disappeared after the first two because hungover John McClane is not the John McClane that I want. And that was, yeah. that really drained the fun out of Die Hard with a Vengeance. I, I, I can see where you're coming from, Sean. I, even though two is probably my least favorite of the, of the series, it does still feel in many ways like a Die Hard movie. McClane is, uh, is still figuring things out. He's still a good detective, follows the same basic structure. I don't really like the fact that there are so many references to the original, like, oh, why does this keep happening to me? And, oh, yeah, I, mean, it I seemed, agree. I mean, William Sadler, when he first talks to McLean on the phone, he's just like, McLean? John McLean? Like, he, he, <laughs> he knows who this guy is automatically just by his voice. And it seems like everyone watched the Nightline episode in <laughs> where McLean was talking about Nakatomi. <laughs> it's not just the references in the script. Uh, it's also the characters uh, that try to reference the first movie as well. Like, uh, what, what, what's his name? The, the guy who helps him with the, um, you know, with the blueprint, the blueprints. Marvin. Uh, Marvin. Marvin, yes. Uh, he, he is like the, he is, well, he's like the Theo of the first one. He, he, they're trying to give you another character to root for like Theo in the first one. 
the, the simpleton janitor just sort of rubbed me the wrong way. You know, it's like yeah. the, the, this completely clueless guy who's just going to help the cop. Especially the way he comes in at the end, you know, with his, uh, go, you know, uh, golf cart. You know, just yeah. like... Uh, hey, guys, it's Marvin! Yeah, yeah. A- another thing that really took me out, that they, they keep trying to call, you know, not just call back the, the characters. Why on earth did they bring back William Atherton for this movie? That whole subplot of William Atherton and Bonnie Bedelia on the plane that, that might crash. I right. understand there has to be something at stake here. But William Atherton's character lends nothing to the movie except length. But this is, that was sequel writing 101 at that time. The Lethal Weapon movies, I'm trying to think of another great example of, that's what they just sort of believed. The Terminator films, they they always pulled back, you know, these old references to the first ones. And they probably didn't have to. Yeah, they do probably feel gratuitous. um, But at the time, I think it it all kind of worked. Well, from what I understand, this movie was based on a novel called 58 Minutes, and uh, the screenplay I don't think was originally intended to be a Die Hard sequel. I think it was repurposed at the last minute. Yeah. Um, I could yeah. be wrong on that. That's the case with a lot of Die Hard sequels. With all of them. Yeah, I don't yeah. think any of them are ever written as a Die Hard film. The, the, the script for With a Vengeance was something called Simon Says and right. had nothing to do with McLean or any of those people. They just reshaped it. Yeah, I think originally it was supposed to be a, a Lethal Weapon movie um, at, at one point. But, Sean, getting back to what you were talking about, the, the violence, that was one thing I definitely noticed rewatching Die Hard 2 recently is it is so much more violent. There is a lot more gore, and it just feels a lot darker than the first one. I mean, 230 innocent civilians die <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> yeah. In a plane crash. and uh-huh. Include, Including Colomini. Yes, Cole Meany, unfortunately, is not, is not able to land the plane. Doesn't he walk through the wreckage and find, like, a teddy bear or something? To- yeah, a child he, teddy he finds bear. a doll, yeah. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah, that's it's, brutal. It's, it's very dark. And, and on the one hand, there's a part of me that's like, wow, that's kind of, that's kind of cool that, that the series is going to such a dark place and it's really right. kind of raising the stakes. And then there's another part of me that's kind of like, I don't want to get depressed when I'm watching a Die Hard movie. That's, that's no, but you know what? Far. I did think, I did like, though, that that was just an example. You don't often get a chance to see that the villain is capable of completing something. And and I do give credit to that, to that movie for at least get, having McClane go about as far as he possibly could and not save them, you know, by lighting the sticks and waving them and trying to get the plane's attention. It just, it, again, all of those things felt like something that he would do. Yeah, that's true. And I always felt that was in line with the character. And, and I think from a motivating standpoint, you always sort of believe that like, because you had to believe that his wife's plane would, would come down in that, in that uh, sequel for him to keep going. Cause otherwise you would stop and you'd say, even if he's just a cop, he's going to, he's got to eventually be like enough of this. But yeah, I right. thought them crashing the plane and that, and first off, they couldn't get away with doing that nowadays. They just wouldn't Never. be able to do that sequence. Um, I think that pissed him off so much more to be like, now I'm really bringing you guys down. And that yeah. I like that character motivation. Well, to play devil's advocate, Sean, maybe that's why he's drinking and his marriage dissolves and he's so hungover in the third one. He just can't live with the guilt that he wasn't able to stop that plane. I'm not saying he can't be hungover McLean. I'm just saying now that I've seen hungover McLean, I don't like him <laughs> for an entire movie. Okay, okay. There's one more thing. I, I don't think we needed to see the bad guy being capable of killing murderous people because when we first saw him, he was doing naked Tai Chi. 
And that, <laughs> strangely enough, I've seen that in more than one movie, so we know that that, that means bad. If, if you see a, like a really cut guy in a darkened motel room doing Tai Chi, that's bad. That's evil. That's all we need. We don't need to see him murder anybody. Fair enough. That's a fair point. Is it just me, or is this the only film in the series with the well okay with the exception of the fourth film in which we see the bad guy before the actual operation is in motion like just preparing and getting ready because they 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 do that they do that a little bit in the fourth film during the opening credits but it's uh i don't believe it's in the third film or the first film Oh, the fourth film has a big opening with them targeting the cyber guys right, before McLean's right. brought into it. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I just thought that was interesting. That right away felt yeah. different to me from the first Die Hard film. It was like, wait, why are we already being introduced to the bad guy if he's just standing there naked <laughs> doing Tai Chi? But <laughs> um, let, let's move on to the next film, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, Sean, this is your third favorite film, right? Right? Mm, no, I I like it less than than the fourth one either. Okay, okay. For shame. Well, this came this this was released in uh, 1995. Uh, John McTiernan came back to direct this sequel, and uh, the bad guy in this one is a terrorist named Simon, who uh, claims to have bombs placed all over New York City, and it's up to John McClane and an unwitting bystander named Zeus played by Samuel L. Jackson, to sort of play his games and defuse the bombs in time. Tim, thoughts on Die Hard with a Vengeance? You, you said earlier that this was your second favorite of the series. It is, it is. Uh, you know, I, I think I appreciate the fact that they bring it into the summertime, finally, and it's not uh, another winter Christmas film. I actually do really appreciate Hungover John McClane, because it, it gives you more uh, pathos to this to, to this character. It gives you uh, more realism to him and his character, and, and his life, essentially. You know, I like how they reference... You know, his divorce from, from Holly or separation or whatever it is at the time. And even though they don't bring in Holly into the story, it's fine by me because, you know, that would have added a lot more unnecessary you know, stuff into this film. I'm glad that John McTiernan came back for this one because he brings a lot of elements uh, from the first film into this one. And I just really enjoy all the, the side characters. I really like his, his uh, police chief and, and his other partners uh, on the force. I, I think they bring a, a lot to, to this film, especially when they're trying to help out the kids later on in, in the um, school that they think that has a bomb in it. Uh, I think Jeremy Irons' character is, is really chews up the scenery very well, it, even though he does uh, a pretty bad accent or multiple accents <laughs> throughout the film. Uh, he tries to do an American accent, which you could say Hans Gruber, Rallen Merkman did a pretty bad accent when he was Bill Clay, you know. Uh, but <laughs> I, I really appreciate this film. And even though it's on a grander scale of New York City, like I said earlier, it, it, it still gives you that contained, almost claustrophobic feel. Yeah, I really enjoy it. I, I agree with you. It's my second favorite of the series as well. Even though, Sean, I, I, I can see what you're saying when the, the ultimate resolution and the final showdown with the bad guy is rather disappointing. Um, it's a pretty lame way to end the movie. But, uh, but Sean, let me ask you, why, why do you dislike this movie so much? Why is this your least favorite? There's so many reasons. Maybe part of it is just I was so looking forward to it, having liked the first two, loved the first two, and... 
it didn't feel like a Die Hard movie to me. Uh, this was the first time, even though, like we said, we pointed out the other screenplay, the screenplay for two wasn't a Die Hard film, but they reworked it to feel like one. This one didn't feel like it to me for so many different reasons. Um, I didn't like McLean at all throughout the whole film. Um, I didn't like his aggression. I didn't like the down spiral that he found himself. And I'm not saying that it's not believable for the character. Maybe it could be, but it just wasn't the wisecracking, sharp uh, detective that I wanted to see in the franchise. Um, outside of that, though, I just think the screenplay is a mess. I don't like the idea of the riddles. I don't like the idea of them running around in different places around New York City. I don't, I don't think the action... I don't think there was decent action in the third one. The the train bomb isn't really much that... McLean doesn't do much of anything. He takes it off of a wall and throws it out a window and then holds on tight. The surfing on the trash, the, on the dumpster in the tunnel full of water is the crappiest effect I've, I've seen in a film, let alone in the Die Hard film. And then not only that, it gets worse when they're dangling on the wire to, to slide themselves down to a tanker and it... And the truck comes off the end, and, and we we see them hold on as they fall backwards. It's that's abysmal, and it looks bad. And if you just go back and watch the way McTiernan shoots it, he doesn't shoot. I don't know if Willis, you guys can kind of see me, I think, but like Willis might have said, like, "Look, I'm losing my hair. You can't shoot anything below my eyes." So he frames everybody <laughs> to like just the forehead, um, and it's it's a very jarring way to film. So it was funny to listen to him. I uh, listened to the director's commentary for the first movie, and he talks so much about how Jan de Bont. Uh, pulled over these European movements of the camera and you see like this flow of the camera in the first one and in the third one I, I haven't gone back to listen to the commentary because I just have I, I guess I am interested so I'm gonna have to make a way to do it because the the approach to the visuals is so different and I think it's supposed to be agitating and it's supposed to feed into the heat of the summer and the and the aggression that McLean feels but as a film um, that bothered me. And so, uh, again, going back to the action, there's no real big fight in the movie. You know, we don't see McLean with Simon until the very end. And their confrontation, Simon's on a helicopter and McLean shoots a, a an electrical wire that brings the helicopter down. Like, there's never a good confrontation between the two of them. Uh, at one point, McLean has to pull a, a bobby pin out of his shoulder, or a splinter out of his shoulder, so he can drop it into Zeus's hands and they can pick the handcuff. Come on, dude. That's awful. I mean, that's just bad screenwriting. I agree with you. Oh, I love that. Oh. The closing act of this uh, of this film is the weakest part. It is the most poorly written uh, and poorly directed part. But I think everything leading up to that is is pretty well done. I think the one and and the one thing that that I can't figure out at all is McLean. Okay, so the the big wave washes McLean McLean out, and he oh, yeah. he gets spit out of the tunnel. Yeah. Thank God that's right where Zeus was driving <laughs> at the time for him to see. This is a movie filled with many coincidences. How can a director let that happen? How? It's just ridiculous. So that, I think the best the best example um, of the let's get to this place because the riddle, we have to solve the riddle, was the, the taxi cab and he's got to get to the station before time runs out. That was credible. But when they got to the Central Park water jug or yeah. this might explode, and, and, and that's when I, that's when that was the first moment where I started to feel like, this is kind of silly. Like, it's not like this is... It's not interesting. And, and that math, that, that math, how they figure that, that one out, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No, it makes no sense. And then Zeus had to go to Yankee Stadium. I had to watch that, that math scene twice to see if what they did was correct. And it was, but I had to watch it twice. Yes, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, for all of those elements, the third one disappointed me. Whitney, what did you think of the third 
film. Um, I'd love, I'd love the third film actually. I, I, I saw this for the first time just a couple nights ago, and I think it's awesome. The, the philosophy toward a lot of action films these days seems to be to sort of like trim it down to something really, really simple. And Die Hard with a Vengeance came out in the mid '90s, sort of the a golden era of. Spe- I know you were complaining about the special effects, and yes, a lot of them are really bad. But if you look at like the the subway train station, they blow up a subway. They blow up a helicopter. They, they blow up a boat. They were really cracking the whip on how entertaining they wanted this film to be. It's like, you know, look at the screenplay. No, they're put in one more explosion. Put in one more bomb. It's like they were trying to reach this sort of critical mass of awesomeness. And I think they kind of reached it. It's like so much more than most of the action films I've seen recently. It just goes so far over the top in a really fun way. Uh, l- like you said, I thought that... Using as new using New York City as sort of the the containing factor was really clever because he's been a New York cop this whole time, but we've never seen him in New York. Now we kind of see him in his see John McClane in his element, which I like. He actually seems uh, really comfortable on the streets, and this is pre Giuliani New York, so it's really kind of filthy. It's you know everybody's really mean spirited. There's the one part where he stops the kid on the bike. Is like it's like Christmas. There's no cops around. You know this is like a really New York's kind of a horrible place, so it needs a cop like John McClane. We see where he comes from now, but without that sort of stupid origin story crap. I think a lot of people object to the relationship he had with Zeus. It sort of turns into 48 hours after a little bit, where they're just sort of bantering off one another, and it's not about John McClane doing great things. It's about the chemistry between the two, but I think John McClane and Zeus have good chemistry. You know, that, that Zeus is really outraged and John McClane has, now has someone to say, no, we have to keep moving forward, too, I think is really great. Jeremy Irons is great as a villain. Uh, the rock star Sam Phillips plays the weird mute assassin sidekick that he gets to have violent sex with, um, which is an awesome scene. I, I don't think the film really goes wrong. It doesn't have the sort of tight, uh, taut screenplay that the first one does. Nothing could. Um, but it feels a lot more focused than the second one. Uh, that it's framed in the term in terms of uh, a scavenger hunt is really clever because that's a really simple premise. You can go with you know just run from place to place solving these puzzles, and that's exciting because it gives you a various set of goals for a hero to complete, and then he completes them. I love the fact that he dangled the winch onto the boat and climbed down onto it. That was a really cool sequence. Uh. Um, (laughs) Sorry, disagree. (laughs) And I know know that the bomb looks like something out of a Spider-Man comic, but I can buy it in this context. Yeah, Um, that's true. And they make a big point of showing how the bomb works. You know, it's like epoxy. You have to mix these two chemicals and then it blows up. And uh, that never paid off, sadly. I was... But then, uh, I guess later on it does, because he uses the two to blow up the... to free himself later on in the The handcuffs, yeah. He gets a little bit of each chemical, and he mixes them. Like I said, it's not not taut, but it's so brash that I couldn't help but enjoy myself. I agree with you, Whitney. I had seen portions of the third one on television, but I had never actually seen it all the way through from start to finish until a few nights ago. And I, I really liked it. I liked the chemistry between... Uh, Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson. I like the fact that, Mc, due to McTiernan's direction, it does feel to me like the first movie, just in terms of the tone and how it's shot. You know, in the first movie, uh, it was about McClane having to take out these terrorists to save a bunch of hostages. In the third film, it feels like New York City is the hostage. There's bombs everywhere. Pe- innocent people are going to die. 
I like how the opening scene is just the bomb going off in the department store, and it just it just starts right there. It just throws you right in the midst of things. There's bombs going off, and McClane has to stop it. It's very prescient uh, six years before 9-11, you know, and it's, <laughs> right. it's and you see the way people are reacting and you're like, that that's actually pretty realistic, how, how people would react in such a situation. That, that's another thing, you know, I said this is very much a New York movie and all of the yeah. characters, you got like Colleen Camp and you got the, the police chief and you got uh, the bomb diffuser, these are all like very ultimate New York characters and we get to know them as New Yorkers. And like the first, we all of the supporting characters seem to be appealing real people. What are the memorable action sequences from With a Vengeance? I like the subway scene. The subway explosion was really awesome. I even like the dump truck surfing yeah, <laughs> scene. I it's agree. crazy. It's it's over the top, but I I I, I like it. I I mean, yes, it's a bit uh, ridiculous when he gets shot up like. A geyser and, and Zeus is right there. And the ele- the elevator sequence uh, when he takes down the four or five people around him after he figures out that they're the bad guys, you know, that's a very intense right. scene. I mean, the, I, I just thought there are a lot of really good set pieces. The, the action in this movie, I, I found myself just visually impressed by the scope of, of, of what they accomplished. I guess what I was hoping for in With a Vengeance was a, a sustained... Um, McLean fight. You know, mm-hmm. in the first two, the Gudinoff fight goes on for a long time. It and does. there's, there's a, com- there's a compelling aspect of that fight of, he's gotta wrap this up because he's gotta get to the roof. And the second one, whether it was a shootout in the annex or whether it was the fight on the wing of the plane, they were sustained. And when you got to with a vengeance, yeah, there was the elevator fight, but it lasted 10 seconds. Um, it was over quick. And then when you got to the fight on the boat, when he was going to fight that hulking bruiser who was with, you know, Jeremy Irons, it was over in 10 seconds. Like, none of right. them lasted for a while. I thought it really shortchanged us in that aspect. Um, it, it looks like something was cut. It looks like the, there was a fight scene, but they just t- took it out of the movie. I agree with you that the third act is very weak. I ac- I read that originally... Simon was going to get away, and in the original, one of the original drafts, uh, McLean was going to end up like losing his job, his marriage falls apart, and he just no, winds up that. losing. Oh, did they film it? That sequence, you can find it on YouTube. If you YouTube okay. alternate ending for, for With a Vengeance, they follow him over to Europe. Right, and then isn't there something with some rocket launchers? Yes, they've filmed that whole sequence, and it's in finished production. You can watch it wow. on YouTube. I have to say that because of reading about it, it sounded way more interesting to me than the than the than the actual ending. It's way better. Die Hard with a Vengeance is already though it's it's like four movies in <laughs> it's, it's like four movies at once. You know, if you go to Europe too, it's like all of a sudden and just throw in a musical number and we have a Bollywood film. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well we, we need to move on to the to the fourth film. But the the last thing I want to ask you guys about Die Hard with a Vengeance. The weirdest thing to me about this movie is that it sort of implies that black people are way more racist than white people by the time we reach the mid-90s. It's just interesting to me that one of the, the, I mean, Zeus's main character arc is basically going from I don't like white people to I guess white people are okay. This was the mid-90s. It was the golden age of multiculturalism and and political correctness. And, you know, Spike Lee was rolling high at this time. So, you know, racial issues needed to be dealt with. And I thought it was sort of a clever way of putting it in the movie without sort of hammering at it in any sort of significant way. 
I think you guys are missing the fact that I think people just liked Sam Jackson in his Pulp Fiction mode, too. So they really wanted more of that. I think they just asked him to be, I, like, they were like, do that character more. You know, do aggressive mm-hmm. black guy more. And Sam did that in a number of different films. It's true. What he do, it's what he does in every one of his movies. I, I just thought it was interesting that in the first two movies, you had um, black characters who were portrayed very positively and were really helpful and integral to the plot. And then by the time we get to the third film, you've got Sam Jackson, who seems to mistrust all white people. And then in the opening... He does it, end it, up it, helping McLean a lot, and he right. even sets McLean straight a few times. But, 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 but then, like, the opening game where polite version would be, would be that uh, McLean has to walk into Harlem with a sign that says, I hate black people. No, that's not what it says. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that's the polite version. The whole vibe I think I got from the movie when it was dealing with the race was that it, it just seemed to be saying, man, black people really need to get over the whole race thing. They're just so quick to, to overreact and... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it seems to be like, shoot Whitey first, ask questions later. I don't know. It just, it just real. it was just felt really weird to me. <laughs> well, and looking back at it now, unfortunately, like I blame Sam Jackson's character for the reason why we now have to have McLean and someone else mm. in these films. Now it's Justin Long. Now it's his son. And I don't, why does McLean need anyone? He's John McLean. Let, right. Let him be the guy. Do consider how old Bruce Willis is. Even in 1995, <laughs> he he is uh, you know reaching his sell by date in terms of an action star. Oh and, yeah. Uh, so so you know share, sharing the weight with someone else kind of makes sense just from a practical perspective. Not Justin uh, Long though. <laughs> well, maybe not Justin Long. So, but uh, you know, how old is Bruce Willis now? Is I don't know, 66? I don't know how old he is. 57, I think. He's 57, all right. I hope I can do that kind of crap when I'm 57. I can't do it now. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, well, let's move on to Justin Long and Live Free or Die Hard. Live Free or Die Hard uh, came out in 2007, uh, follows John McClane and a young hacker played by Justin Long who have to stop Thomas Gabriel played by Timothy Oliphant. He is a cyber terrorist who is shutting down the communications and infrastructure of the entire country. So the stakes have really risen by the time we get to the fourth film. Sean, I know you really liked Die Hard 4. Is this your second favorite overall? Or is your third favorite, I guess I should say? Two is my second favorite. Okay. Um, so four would be my third favorite. Um I liked it a lot more the first time through. Uh, I've gone back and revisited a few times, and I see its faults. But I still will say that it has um, standalone sequences that help it stand out as being my third favorite of the franchise for what that's worth. I think his fight with Maggie Q is a brutal fight. Um, and the way that it ends up, you know, with the cars dangling in the elevator shaft, that's an exciting sequence. Um for any sort of action sequence, whether it's a Die Hard or not, I thought that the that this this whether it was Willis just sort of waking up to it or what, I thought it got back to the attitude of John McClane. But I didn't. I mean, for for all the things I really liked about it, there are just as many things I didn't like about it. Um, I I liked the darkened tunnel sequence, although the the hurtling car is silly. And then it just really lost its way. I mean, by the time he's surfing on the wing of an F1 fighter, you know, right. crazy. Um, <laughs> Live free or die hard. This is the movie in which John McClane 
becomes full-blown superhero. I mean, at least Agreed. in yeah. the first three, he's still kind of a detective. He's still trying to put the pieces together and figure things out. By the time we get to Live Free or Die Hard, he's totally out of his league. I mean, he's having to rely on Justin Long to pretty much explain everything. And Justin Long's pretty much the brains behind putting things together. Don't forget about Kevin Smith. Yeah, yeah no. Kevin Smith as well. I, and I was trying the- to forget about Kevin Smith, but all right. <laughs> The action is so over the top. I mean, as Justin Long puts it, uh, you killed a helicopter with a car. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's so many big action set pieces. And even though I'm not a big fan of Lynn Wiseman as a director, I actually think he really did a good job with this film and directing mm. the, the action scenes. Even though it's PG-13, uh, some of the blood has to be <sighs> down a bit. He, uh, John All of the blood. can't say his catchphrase. I actually really like this movie overall. I, I, I think, I think in many ways it fails as a diehard movie, but it's Agreed. still really fun just as a summer blockbuster action film. Well, here, here's an interesting element about uh, Live Free or Die Hard, which doesn't take place in New Hampshire. That kind of pisses me off. <laughs> Live Free or Die is the state motto of New Hampshire, and it doesn't take place in New Hampshire. But uh, in the, all of the previous movies, we could sort of sympathize with John McClane because he was saving something that was important to him. In the first two, it was his wife, both times. In the third, it was his hometown. Uh, in this one, he has to save the internet, and one of his <laughs> primary character traits is that he's a Luddite. He doesn't use that crap. He right. doesn't care about the internet. It has to be explained to him why it's important that he save this. There are a lot of conversations he has that I recall. I haven't seen this since it came out in theaters where Justin Long has to explain to him why it's important that he save the internet. And, you know, John McClane, he doesn't seem to care. He just sort of talks to himself. Why is any of this important to John McClane? Now he's just doing PG-13 rated fights and explosions for no real reason, it almost seems. He gets a speech, and it's supposed to be the I'm taking glass out of my foot speech, where he says, you know sometimes you have to step up and be the guy, you know, and it falls on you to just, when things are going bad, there's only a few of us who can do, I'm not, I'm not justifying it, believe me. I'm just <laughs> yeah. saying that they at least did try to include a scene that establishes, Hey, in case you forgot, McLean's a good guy. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> this is why he rises to the challenge, but you're totally right. There wasn't an investment. And then they even pulled his daughter into it because yeah. Gabriel's able to find his daughter and take her hostage. But by then it's too late. Of all the diehard movies, this is the least, Die Hard, and as with mo- a lot of movies, I'm sure, but this is this is one that really has the fingerprints of a producer finding a script and then somewhat enjoying the script, and then say, "Hey, wait a minute, we haven't done a Die Hard movie in a long time. Let's put John McClane in this script and and rework it so that we can put Die Hard on the title and sell some tickets." And uh, it, and it just goes to show in in all. All throughout the movie, it is he is put in situations that are the least diehard franchise of of the whole series. And like you said, when he is uh, jumping off of an F fourteen, when he is crashing a a uh, a car, police car into a helicopter, uh, these are just so over the top things that remind you of a movie like True Lies. True Lies, a movie that is is tongue in cheek and referencing all of these Hollywood tropey action movies, whereas a diehard movie 
movie is re- really should be about a singular the singular person John McClane in a contained uh, environment and th- this is the least contained of them he's all over the eastern seaboard and mm-hmm. it, and, it, and it, the geography and the the time he flies a helicopter in this one yeah the, the geography yes. and the time frame <laughs> of all of this gets lost throughout the whole you can't make sense of what how long mm. how long does this take it looks like it takes place in all one day but he's driving to west virginia driving to new york city and driving to to washington dc and you have no idea how long this takes it's like an episode of 24 you know they say i'm i'm in claremont i'll be you know 50 miles away in 10 minutes no you won't i know la traffic <laughs> Whitney, it's interesting you bring up that point about McLean and technology because that, in a weird way, has been a theme throughout the entire series. I mean, in the in the second yeah. film, it was what's a fax machine? I can't use a fax machine. What's all this technology? Right. In the in the third one, it's a cell phone. The cell phone's useless. It's broken. And by the time we get uh, to 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 Die Hard Four, but you know, just twelve years after Die Hard Three. Yes. You know, we, we've had, like, since 1995, we've had the internet. You know, technology <laughs> has exploded. And also, one thing I, I complained about uh, in Die Hard 2 was the overuse of ADR. That movie does not hold a candle to this film. It's like half <laughs> half of the exposition and half of the dialogue is, is all ADR, and just terrible editing to cover up that ADR. Plus, Len Wiseman does not trust his camera. He has to move it all the time which makes you sick and it and it's just terrible whereas you know of course in the first one Jean Debat is a cinematographer and he's he's great he brings a great style to 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 the film and one thing that you also we also haven't uh, mentioned throughout the whole franchise is the music the music the score in the first one is tremendous and That's also great. also because way, it's beethoven <laughs> yeah but it's not just that it's also an original score and and the way it's edited for the lens flares to coincide with with the music, the tones of the music. You know, it is is expert. It's it's amazing, and it just completely abandons the the music except for two small uh, occasions when he's in a tight spot or whatever in Live Free or Die Hard. It, it references the 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 original score a little bit, but barely, and not nearly as interestingly as the first two. So does Willis just forget what makes a diehard movie, or does Willis just want the paycheck? Oh, he just wants a paycheck. <laughs> he's an actor, you know. He's he's just gonna say here, you know. But that's his, this is his defining franchise, though. This this should be his defining franchise. What does make a diehard movie, Sean? Because I mean, it seems like uh, there's nothing totally consistent about it, other than the fact that McLean is fighting some sort of criminal or, or, or terrorist group in each of the movies. I mean, in the third one isn't set around a holiday, even though they reference Christmas a few times. So you can't say that a diehard film has to be set around a holiday. Uh, I mean, the third one also doesn't have a family member in it, so he's not always trying to save a family member. Right. The fourth one, as you've already mentioned, doesn't have a lot of the key characteristics of of the character and of the franchise. So, I mean, what does make a diehard movie? I don't know. I don't know if they can make another Die Hard movie, to be honest with you. Um, I think they can continue to make moderately entertaining films, but I don't know if personally I'm ever going to be able to consider this like, yeah, this is definitely a Die Hard movie. This fits into the the mold of, you know, the first two. I'll even say the first three. Um, I just think that the ship has sailed um, and Willis can keep making them. If and, and obviously the producers will keep going back to that well as long as he's willing He's already talking about doing a sixth one. Yeah. So as long as they're profitable, they'll keep going back to it. But I don't think 
like I have two boys. They're nine and five. They're too young to see them. But when they do get around to seeing them, I'll show them all of them. But I know that their interest is going to wane by the end of the third one. So I, I think uh, the series would have survived a little bit better, strangely enough, through just one small detail. Had they not all been called Die Hard, like uh, <laughs> if if Die Hard Two hadn't been called Die Hard Two, if it had been called like Plane Explosion, <laughs> something better than Plane well, Explosion. Well, actually, it's, it's called Die Harder. <laughs> right. There, there's, there's an alternate title, but yeah, Die Harder. <laughs> so if, if you know, by the third, third one, it was like a bad day in New York with John McClane. You know, that that would have been, <laughs> I, I think, you know, like none of the James Bond movies are called James Bond. You know, we're not on Doctor No Part Forty. It's you know, it's they each have their own titles. So I think that the franchise could have survived a little bit better if we had distanced ourselves from the first a little bit more. And not sort of constantly inviting comparisons to the first Die Hard, which, sadly, is so perfect that it could never live up to that. I find it interesting that sequels always feel that they need to escalate. Um, and in some instances, escalation's fine. But more often than not, by the time you get to part three, part four, part five of any franchise... Even the the most ardent fans are just saying, enough is enough. We can't take it. We don't need Chris Rock, Rene Russo, and Joe Pesci, you know? <laughs> pick one or don't pick any of them. And, and they're not even the villain. So it's it's too much. It's just too much at this point now. I've noticed that in a lot of franchises, by the time you get to part three, things are just totally ridiculous. Because, you know, part yeah. one, great. Part two, Escalate, still can be great. You know, we, we love the character and we're willing to see them again. By the time they get to part three, they either have to escalate to such a ridiculous degree that it's not fun anymore, right. or they have to take the series in a new direction and introduce, like, a new character or some such right. thing. Sometimes it works. I think Die Hard with a Vengeance it works. But you look at something like Superman 3, where all of a sudden Richard Pryor is in it. Right. Or, you know, S- Spider-Man 3, which is eight movies all yeah. at once. You know, yeah, it's, it's just crazy. And I just think Escalation works against what made the, the Die Hard premise work, which was constriction and uh, claustrophobia. Yeah. And so when you escalate, it goes against the natural premise of the film. And sadly, they can't go out with Die Hard 5 constricting again. You know, they can't make it small. Well, I guess they kind of did with Part 4 because, you know, you go from Alan Rickman to Franco Nero to Jeremy Irons, and now who do we have? We have Timothy Oliphant. I like Timothy Oliphant, but I'm yeah. sorry, he's no Jeremy Irons. Yeah, he, he, is, he is the least compelling villain in all of the franchise so far. Well, and the fifth one hasn't sh- barely shown a villain at all in any of the marketing materials. It's all McLean and his son. It's true. They sure have. They've shown that hot chick in the biker outfit. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, unzipping <laughs> her, her, her outfit. An awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, let's let's wrap things up. Um, let's just go ahead and give our final thoughts on the Die Hard series as a whole, and then go ahead and rank them one through four in in order of, of preference. Sean, I'm going to start with you. Uh, I mean, the Die Hard franchise is always going to boil down to John McClane. He is still one of my favorite screen characters. Uh, even if I'm not satisfied with the film, I'm always going to appreciate an ability to go back and revisit him. Uh, even watching Live Free or Die Hard, I, I, I know you guys chuckle a bit, but I do think that Willis sort of woke up and brought that sort of uh, sarcastic charisma that I know he has and, and only uses every once in a while. Um, McClane does have a couple of pretty good lines in Live Free or Die Hard. He has, he has great lines in all of the movies, so it's always going to sort of boil down to being able to see McClane again. And yeah, if I have to go to Moscow to see him again, great. Um, I just hope he's funny. 
I hope he's uh, edgy. I hope that he's trash talking the villains as he fights them. And uh, I hope he's that sort of anti-hero who I love so much. Uh, I'm ranking them <laughs> one, two, four, and three, and I'm hoping that five lands somewhere between two and one, if that makes sense. <laughs> All right. Tim, your final thoughts on the Die Hard series and, and, and your rankings. Yeah, well, uh, like I said, Die Hard 1 is my favorite movie of all time. Uh, it is such a singular achievement in, in film history, I think, uh, and, and action movie history. I do enjoy the rest of the, of the series to a degree. Uh, if I'm gonna rank them, I would say 1, 3, 2, and 4. And as far as the, the next film, I'm, I can't say I'm actually looking forward to it based on what Live Free or Die Hard brought us. But it is John McClane, and I will, and I and I am a fan of Bruce Willis, so I will go see it. All right, Whitney, your final thoughts. I think it's very telling that you asked the question during this uh, this little conversation, what makes a Die Hard movie, and none of us had a really good answer to that. It's this is a strange series in that they do sort of focus on John McClane. He is the center of all of these, but I think. What really makes a Die Hard movie is something that's really difficult to pin down, and that's tone. Um, it, it has this very, very difficult to define sense of, uh, of fun and danger to it without being sort of edgy or modern in any sort of way, if that makes any sense. It's sleek and it's shiny, but it's not modern. It, it feels, even the first one feels very traditional, and I think that's, a, that's an, an important element to capture. Um, I think it's something that the fourth one didn't have, especially in the fact that it was rated PG-13, which I think is its biggest flaw. These are old-fashioned movies that need to have big explosions, foul language, tits, and blood. And, you know, the fourth one didn't have any of those. You know, it says, like, yippee kaye mother, and then there's a gunshot. No, right. sorry. Just say it. You can say the F word <laughs> once in a PG-13 rated film. Use it there, for goodness sake. Not if it's preceded yeah. by mother. Uh, yeah. So, I, I, you know, the first one, like I said, is a, a perfect action movie. It's clearly the best of the series. Um, I like the third one a lot. Um, not as much as the first, but I, I still thought it was really awesome. Um, I didn't like the second or the fourth, and uh, I, again, like Tim, I'm not looking forward to the fifth, but we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, we've drifted so far away from the original that it couldn't really even be a Die Hard movie, except in name only. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to go back to 1988 to really capture the magic of what this whole series is about. Okay, so what, what was your final ranking? Oh, I guess, I guess it was 1, 3, 2, and 4, neck and neck. And uh, I guess I'll put five in there as well in advance, just because I'm pretty sure that's where it's going to fall. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's such good critical integrity. I'm judging a movie before I see it. All right. Well, I actually really like all the Die Hard movies. I think as a series, it's just a really fun series. I, I agree with you. The first film is the only truly great movie. But I actually think its three sequels are actually really fun and actually really good action films in their own right. And it's hard for me to rank them because I actually think the sequels – are very, I, I, I kind of look at them similarly in terms of their quality. They're just really, I, I think they're all really, really fun and really good action movies. I'd probably rank them 1, 3, 4, 2, but it would just be very minimal gaps between the sequels because I, I actually like them all. I think that the first three movies actually work very well as a trilogy, as the story of John McClane, New York City cop fighting terrorists, I'm hoping that four through six will be another trilogy as 
focusing on John McClane's superhero, <laughs> and that they 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 will all be fun action mainstream blockbuster films in in their own right. But we'll we'll have to see. I I actually like all the Die Hard movies quite a lot. As I I think as a whole, it's it's, it's pretty good series. And Die, Die Hard Seven will be the young John McClane. Oh, <laughs> it'll be a prequel. It'll take place in the mid seventies. There'll be a new actor. That's a terrible idea. No, don't do that. <laughs> I would watch that over McLean at the International Space Station, which is what we're going to get eventually. I cannot wait to see that <laughs> movie. Actually, I I would be perfectly fine if there were just like four or five more Die Hard movies, and they were they all just focused on John McLean fighting a relative of Hans Gruber. That'd be okay with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's Hans Gruber's hot niece. <laughs> crazy eventually like kate upton will be in there or something i don't know <laughs> maybe they'll throw it over to the to his son and uh john mcclain jr will be the new hero of the series i don't know i hope not but you never know it, it's hollywood all right i think that'll wrap it up uh for this episode of cinema fix uh thanks for tuning into our bonus discussion on all the diehard films don't forget to tune in to our regular episodes next week when we'll be discussing side effects and a good day to die hard, the next film in the, in the die hard series. Uh, we'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you like this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the show. You can also donate to us to the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including The Thin Place and our new podcast that's launching this weekend, Cage Side. All right. It's been a privilege talking with all you guys. Sean, where can people find more of your work and how can they connect with you online? I primarily write for Fandango and Cinema Blend. I am lucky enough to get columns on movies.com as well. And for my reviews, just go to. And are you on Twitter? Can people connect with you through social media at all? Please. I'm at Sean O'Connell, but it's Sean underscore O'Connell. That's S-E-A-N underscore O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L. All right. Tim Costa, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find my podcast, uh, the First Time Watchers podcast on iTunes. Uh, you can find us on Twitter uh, at 1ST Time Watchers. We also have a Tumblr page, uh, firsttimewatchers.tumblr.com. Whitney, where can people connect with you? Oh, oh, right here. No, um, I, uh, I am co-host of a podcast called the B-Movies Podcast on Crave Online. Uh, that is on iTunes. It's also at CraveOnline.com, uh, which I co-host with one William Bibiani. Uh, Crave Online is where all of my uh, articles, film reviews, and various series go up. I have Free Film School, and I have The Series Project, and uh, we even have another show called The Trailer Hitch going on there at at this time. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my editor did finally convince me to join Twitter, um, where I'm slowly losing my mind. I am uh, at uh, Whitney Seibold. That's, that's W-I-T-N-E-Y-S-E-I-B-O-L-D. Uh, and yeah, you can tune in and none of my tweets will make any sense, so you'll enjoy it. Oh, you're so behind on technology, Whitney. You're the John McClane of film criticism. I don't understand this Twitters and fax machines you kids have. Your hula hoops. Have you done an installment of the series project on the Die Hard films? I am actually currently working on it. The first half of it went up on uh, just a few days ago, and the second half will be up uh, by the time the fifth one opens. 
All right. Well, then people will have to go check that out. I'm Andrew Johnson. You can find some of my writing at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. All right. I think that'll wrap it up for this episode of the show. Thank you all for joining me. Yay! Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. Have fun this week getting high on cinema. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!